0: Support for the greater than code podcast comes from o'reilly fluent and velocity conferences coming to san jose california june 11 through 14 join us for more insights networking and experts like brendan ike susan fowler brian Lyles, and cory doctorow you'll get hands-on training to help you improve performance resilience and user experience register now with code gtc20 to save up to 519 dollars on your pass learn more at o'reilly.com better together
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to episode 81 of Greater Than Code. I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my great friend, Coraline Ada-Emke.
2: Hi, Jamie. Really happy to be here, and also happy to
0: be here with my friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, hello, and I am pleased to introduce our shiny new panelist and guest today, John Sars. Amongst John's weaponry are public speaking, doing the Rails thing, and talking about feelings in public. His technology talks aren't about technology, and sometimes he has time to meditate. He also remembers the sound of dial-up. Raise your hand if you're old like me. (laughs) Who can forget the sound of (laughs) dial-up? You
1: you do not have to be that old to remember that. Yeah. (laughs) Actually...
0: I actually have a T-shirt that says, back in my day, the internet went squeegee. Nice. <laughs> Soon, John will no longer write much code, having intentionally, yes, intentionally moved into management. He seems to think that making people better is more satisfying than making computers better. With that in mind, he's also spent a lot of time mentoring bootcamp developers and supervising workshops focused on deep emotional work. He spends days at Privia Health, nights as co-founder and CTO of Data Simply, and all the rest of it at johnk.sowers.com and emotionalapi.com. Welcome, John.
2: Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Your first show is actually our live show at RailsConf. Is that correct? Uh well, we did
3: two shows at Railsconf. Uh so we did the one recorded one and then we did the one with the audience.
2: Oh yeah. I was
3: jumping right into it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no lie. So, John, you've been on the show a couple of times now, and I hope you were also a longtime listener. So, can you anticipate what our first question is going to be? <laughs>
3: uh, so much so that I put the answer right in my bio. <laughs> oh, cheater. Curses.
1: Outwitted. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, my superpower is talking about feelings in public. And I started thinking about what that answer was going to be like after listening to like probably the second show. And I was like, oh, what would my answer be? I <laughs> <And then laughs> Stumbled upon that fairly quickly and was like, yeah, I think that's it.
1: How did you acquire the superpower of talking about feelings in public?
3: Oh, it was a, a long, long process. I spent the first 35 years of my life being incredibly shy. And I could relate to people I knew very well, but like relating to people like in public or in groups was difficult. And then I went to some workshops called P3, Purpose, Passion, Peace which are focused on delving deep, deep, deep into the, your emotional history and actually working on expressing those emotions from the whole of your life that you've been holding on to that you've never addressed. And the That way sounds really, really difficult.
2: It is. Like, putting myself in that position, I know I'd be crying an awful lot. Yeah,
3: and, and there's certainly plenty of that. What's amazing about the workshop is that it's organized in such a way that, like, you feel safe enough that you can do it. Uh, and it's a pretty... Magical thing that they can accomplish that in such a short time because you sort of show up you meet everyone There's a bunch of people there who've been through it before so they sort of know that the thing and then they just sort of guide you through this process and make it feel incredibly safe and Like everyone understands what you're going through and so suddenly it becomes a little bit more possible to actually say that thing that you've never said in your entire life or to r- admit that you feel X about Y And going through that process was amazing for me. And, you know, I started going back and assisting people. And then eventually I was doing it so much. I was like organizing the weekends and and supervising the workshops. And through that process of just suddenly being able to have feelings in a group of people that often I just met like the day before, I suddenly became okay with it. I mean, it was a lot of practice. It was years of practice. But at the end of it, it was like, oh, all right, it's okay now.
1: I think that in some ways, maybe it's easier to have feelings to people that you just met than people that you've known. Would you agree or disagree?
2: I would. I would agree. So I know um, we have this ideal of programmers as being these code writing machines who don't let their feelings get in the way. I actually wrote a blog post on the greater than code blog called emotions as state machines to try to demystify emotions and um, actually did state machine diagrams for common emotions like anger and envy and things like that. Do you think that being emotionless, do you agree, first of all, that that's like an archetype and an aspiration even for a lot of people? And what do you think the impact of trying to suppress your emotions as a developer really is?
3: I think it's definitely an archetype. I don't know if people aspire to it, but I think that there's so little in technology culture that would prod you to move away from that state.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many of us grew up on
3: Spock, right? Yeah. They're the one you look up to, the one you want to be like. And so they're tied together that way with the sort of emotionlessness and the technology and the intelligence.
2: I see that a lot. Um, I'm thinking about recent interactions with Bob Martin. And when you have underrepresented people, when you have marginalized people discussing what their life is like in tech, it's often very emotional because we're reacting to systems that are designed to promote certain people and hold back other people. So one one sort of pattern I've seen, unfortunately mainly among white male developers, is a resistance to any kind of emotional plea for justice. And tone policing, like, well, maybe you could convince me if you are being logical Why won't you debate me? Why can't you simply stick to facts?
0: Right, which is purely a defense against having any emotional response themselves, which comes from having emotions of discomfort and not feeling like you're centered all the damn time.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think being a cis white male gives you the luxury of pretending like you don't have emotions. I mean, I I think we're like I'm one of those people and I think we are raised – in ways that make it very difficult to access that part of our lives. But I also think that, like, as you say, society is sort of arranged in such that, like, we can avoid all the discomfort. We can avoid all the, all those emotional spaces because, you know, we don't have to deal with any of the hard stuff. And so I think, A, it's sort of difficult as someone in that place to understand someone coming at you from an emotional state. But I think, what is it, the zeitgeist of the technology is, as you say, You know, that those aren't important. And if we could just stop talking about that stuff, we could get so much more done and be, you know, perfect little computer programmers.
0: Computer doesn't have emotions. Why do you?
1: I feel like my computer might have emotions. (laughs) Just saying.
2: I have a perspective on this from my experience of being trans. Back when I was doing the experiment of trying to live as a male presenting person, I was terrified of emotions because emotions would unlock this sort of secret being that I had. And I was terrified that people would find out my secret. So the only emotion I really allowed myself was anger, um, because anger was the most masculine of emotions. And um, as part of my transition process, I opened myself up to like acknowledging my emotions and acting on my emotions but I had a very hard time learning to regulate my emotions. I suddenly had this new input in my brain, and I didn't know how to balance it with my rational brain. They were often at odds, and that's something that I still struggle with. It. When I'm faced with like an overwhelming emotion, the logical part of my brain shuts off, which I've tried to be okay with. I've tried to just sit with the emotion and say kind of acknowledge that it's happening but not let it direct all my actions Mm
3: -hmm. that's definitely a key and that's it's a learned skill as you say you know when you don't have the ability to practice that as you're growing up suddenly being dropped into the deep end of oh now now all these emotions are happening (laughs) is a little distressing yeah
1: it's very weird to me that we gender emotions and it's definitely a thing that happens and like i've had I was gonna say a similar but actually a very dissimilar experience um, with my experience being trans where like I was growing up and I've always been like a really intense crier that's just like a thing about me I cry very easily at a lot of not just bad emotions but just in general and that wasn't a huge problem in my life growing up in fact it was like this is so stereotypical, but like, oh, I got pulled over and for speeding and I cried because I was stressed out and then I didn't get a ticket kind of thing. And like, not like in a manipulative way, but just like, I was so stressed out that I'm like, oh no, and then now I am, I mean, I still am like the kind of person that cries a lot and I feel much more self-conscious about it now than I used to, because I feel like, People are gonna gender the fact that I'm crying, which is like a very weird thing to worry about.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's something I talk about a lot in in my talk. Is that it's so easy to be worried that X feeling means something about you, like that it means that you're more masculine, that you're more feminine, that you're a certain kind of person, that you don't have your act together, that like that you're have anger issues, right? So there's there's all these sort of feelings you have about your feelings
0: <laughs> that
3: make it a lot harder to sort of sort out what's actually going on. Because you can't really have two feelings at once, but they can sort of like interact with each other. And so you have to sort of tease them apart and deal with like first is the one feeling, then is the other feeling. and And that itself is a, a skill that you have to learn. And it really helps if you've got someone else that can help you do that.
2: And emotions can be a chain reaction, right? You can start with anger. And anger can lead to resentment if it's not acknowledged and handled in the right way. And something that makes you a little bit sad can lead to despair. And it seems to me like unless you're educated on responding to the emotions that you're feeling, especially if they're overwhelming emotions, you can lead yourself down a very dark path.
0: I think a necessary prerequisite to that education is just being educated about what your emotions actually are which, you know, anybody who was raised with the outside world thinking they were uh, a boy doesn't get that training, right? I, we have like three, four five words for emotions and that's it. I ran across this thing that I, I'll put a link in the show notes to the, uh, the feelings wheel, which is somebody who borrowed a, a diagram of categorization of feelings. And that starts with like big topics and then breaks it out into subsegments. segments. It's, uh, I actually printed the thing out cause it seems super useful, <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm starting to learn some of those myself.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I discovered that myself a while back. And I actually I added it to my sli- talk slides. And I actually have a printout, like a card that I give out to people who want them at the end of the talk. So, yeah. Nice. It's super handy.
1: It seems so unfair that, like, having a feeling can make your other feelings worse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suffer from anxiety um, kind of intensely, actually. And I, I experience this a lot where like I have anxiety and that's just a fact about me. But sometimes I have anxiety about my anxiety and it just seems so unfair. Like I can think about like there's one part of my brain that can think about it logically. And I'm just sitting here in this like ball of like anxiousness going like this is so stupid that this is happening. <laughs> but I just, it just is anyway.
0: And that totally helps, right?
1: no <laughs>
0: <laughs> damn it logic
1: and sometimes it does help because i feel like being able to logic your way out of feelings that are irrational is like not necessarily realistic all the time but it is something that i find that i can do some of the time and i wish that i knew what the difference was between the times when i can do it and the times then i can't do it
0: <laughs> well i don't know about anybody else but my experience is that you know, wishing I didn't have a feeling and opposing the feeling does not work. Um, I need to use some sort of emotional Aikido to sort of go with it and redirect it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you
3: can you can think through it and sort of be like, oh, you know, now that I've like analyzed the situation, you know, maybe the feeling isn't as strong, or I realized X person was wasn't intending to harm me or whatever, like, and that can help the feeling go away. But I think there are a lot of other situations where the feeling is coming from your body. It's some some sort of biochemical, like, physical thing that's going on. And, like, those ones are very hard to argue with because you've got – basically, your brain is taking input saying there's something to be anxious about. There's something to be anxious about. Hey, pay attention to this. and. I think the solution to in those situations is to look at the body and try and figure out what the body needs to counteract that situation. And there's no, no like easy way to break down which feelings are of which type. Like, I'm certainly not an expert in that. I just know that there are cases where, well, like hangry, for example, right? You're <laughs> yeah. You're hangry, your blood sugar's dropping. You're just going to be kind of a dick for a while. And realizing if that's what's happening, you can, you know, grab some, you know, a hard candy or something. And 10 minutes later, you're like, oh. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) Right.
1: I think there's, like, a spectrum where both intense sides of the spectrum are, like, torturing yourself. Um, Because, like, let me explain. The, the first side is the like, this is stupid and I shouldn't be feeling it. So I'm going to stop because that doesn't work and just makes you that's just torturing yourself. But then like I think the other side of that spectrum is like when you're sad and you just like watch yourself cry in the mirror and you're like, look how bad I look when I cry. Like, <laughs> that's the exact opposite response. But I think it's also like not a good way to treat yourself. So it's this like trying to balance yourself in the middle of that somewhere, I think is the hard part, but the healthy part, if that makes
3: sense. De- definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I, I certainly have known people who really enjoyed feeling negative emotions and really just wanted to wallow around in how bad they felt about things. And I think that's, as you say, equally unhealthy.
2: I think negative emotions can be addictive.
3: Especially if if they happen to you a lot, they can be comfortable. Like this is where I'm familiar with how the world is when I feel this way. And when I don't feel this way, maybe it makes me a little anxious because it's not as familiar.
2: I've been doing therapy for a few years now, and um, I had a period last year where absolutely every aspect of my life was good. had a good relationship. I had a good job. I had enough money. I had a great relationship with my daughter. I still do. Every aspect of my life was just good. And my reaction to it was suspicion Mm -hmm. because I'm like, what am I missing? And I started catastrophizing, like, well, what if this good thing ends? And then I'm going to be devastated. And my therapist told me, Coraline, you don't know how to be happy. Mm -hmm.
1: I've been in periods of my life before where I felt happy and suspicious isn't quite the right word, but I almost felt like, who is this person that isn't me? Like, I felt like I had attached who I was to like my anxiety so intensely that I was like, I can't just not feel anxiety. Then I'm some other weird person. And it took a while to be like, no, like there's still a me underneath the layers of that. That's not like tied. Like, why would I tie myself to something I hate? But it was hard.
2: There was another thing that that I experienced and I don't want to go into the details because it involves drugs. But at that sort of peak, I started feeling guilty about ever being sad because I was like, my life is really good. I'm living a charmed life. I'm in Stockholm with my supermodel girlfriend speaking all the time. Like I have all this great stuff happening to me. I travel extensively. I do what I want. So why do I have the right to ever feel sad or depressed? Isn't that like an insult to people who have it a lot worse
0: than I do? And it, it just filled me with guilt. One of the things that I've been processing recently is, you know, that my depression had just become so, so bad over the years. And it manifested as basically me not feeling anything for a really long time. But one of the factors that went into that was, you know, I had some childhood trauma and I think... I had a friend when I was 20 who told me about all kinds of horrible things that they went through. And I think unconsciously I was just comparing my experience to theirs and being like, well, they survived all that. Mine must have, must not have been really all that bad. So it must have been okay. So I must not have to deal with it.
3: Yeah. It's so difficult when you end up comparing yourself, your own experience to some putative other person's experience and like the comparison never works out well, right? Because either right. you feel superior to them or you feel inferior to them. You never feel like, oh, yeah, we're perfectly equal. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can never win with that comparison.
2: But how do you avoid making that comparison? How do you avoid the guilt over being depressed?
1: I find that, like, when other people compare what they're going through to what I'm going through, I find that so off-putting and frustrating that when I start to feel myself doing it to someone else I try to be like okay remember yesterday when someone on Twitter did that to you and how you didn't like it so why are you doing it now and I actually do like I can see where that might not be helpful but I actually do find that really helpful for me personally.
2: I, I think that what can happen a lot of times when I express an emotion and someone's like yeah, that relates exactly to this situation I was in, I feel like they shift the center away from me and my feelings, and they start centering themselves, which isn't truly a way of practicing empathy.
3: Yeah, that's something I've, I've had to train myself out of doing, because for the longest time I thought that, like, by relating a common experience was the way to sort of get on the same page and, and sort of talk about how common we are. But you're right, the side effect is that recentering, which is far less helpful than anything you could gain from the just saying, Yes, we've had the same experience. Uh, so I'm I've been trying hard over the last, I think, year once I realized that I was doing it and it was having that effect that I've been trying to stop.
0: It can also be re traumatizing too. Like to use a, a completely unrelated example. Some years ago, our house was broken into and a computer was stolen and some other stuff was removed as well. So we wound up telling other people, hey, this is a thing that happened to us recently. And we would inevitably hear about the time that their house got broken into. And so we got to experience their anxiety and all that other fun stuff. And it's like, I realize you're trying to reach out, but that's not helping.
1: I also think that the sentence, I realize you're trying to reach out, but that's not helping is like something that society has decided that it's like rude for us to say but I feel like we should just say do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I've been consciously for the past maybe six months or a year or so if people around me are having a conversation that I find really stressful like as an example if like people come over to my house to play D&D and then they decide to talk about politics I have been starting to be like I'm sorry guys it's not that like I don't care about what you're saying, but I really just don't want to talk about this right now. I would really rather if we talked about something else and people obviously find this off putting. And I feel sorry for that because I'm not trying to be off putting, but I think it's a really good thing to do. And I think the reason that they find it off putting is because people don't do it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think that you can be polite and say, This is anxiety-inducing for me in some way. And at least the way I look at it for myself is like, if I'm trying my best to be polite and it's what I need out of this conversation, then it's what I'm going to ask for. And I found that when I first started doing it, people in my life were put off by it. And people are like, I'm watching my friends get used to it. And it's really kind of interesting and kind of rewarding. Like at first... At first, people would look at me like I was rude. And then I went through a phase where people would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I'm not mad. I just don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> and so it's been kind of interest, like an interesting experiment that has been working out for me. And so I, I like to tell people about it just because it has been helpful for me. And maybe it could be helpful for other people.
3: Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, setting any kind of boundary like that is uncommon.
0: It's another thing we're not trained for.
3: Yeah. And that just... The the I mean, and I think especially women get this where their boundaries don't matter at all and other people can do whatever. And so then they get a lot of pushback when they try to set any sort of boundary. And I think it happens to a lesser degree with men where there's just they're not used to either knowing how to set that boundary in a nice way. And also also people not just not being familiar enough with how to react to that and just be like, oh, OK. I mean, ideally, you'd want to be like I would want to be thankful For someone setting their boundaries, because that means I'm not intruding on, you know, password they want me. But, yeah, I I think it takes learning.
0: I think you have to fundamentally become comfortable with the idea that other people are people. Yep. So, John, one of the things that we mentioned
2: in your bio is a project you have called EmotionalAPI.com. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So this project came out of the work I did at P3 because I sort of basically had spent years doing that, learned so much about like how my emotions worked, how other people's emotions work, that I felt like that knowledge would be really useful if it was spread around some more. And I wanted to find a way to make it, uh, you know, accessible to someone who hasn't gone through, you know, a sort of a deep, intense workshop experience, um, and realized that you know a lot of it is based on just misunderstanding of how feelings work. Cause like, again, no one ever sits you down and says, these are the kinds of feelings you can have. And these are how they feel. And this is what you can do. And the whole like, I never did. I don't, I've never heard of anyone getting that, that sort of training, certainly not early in life. And so I thought, Oh, well now that I know a few things, how can I get that out? And I was like, well, I could do blog posts. And then I was like, you know, this actually would really make a good, like, RailsConf type talk because I think it's a conference I I go to a lot. It's the people I like a lot. I like the community a great deal. I think it would be receptive to that sort of an idea. So I sort of started building it like, oh my God, I could actually do a talk. And this was still when I was at the point of like the thought of getting on stage seemed rather impossible to me, but I was like, ah, this idea is too good not to talk about. So and just sort of started writing ideas down, writing ideas down. And then the uh, Open Source and Feelings conference had their CFP out. Um, this was what, three years ago. And I thought, oh, well, if there's any conference ever that that would love this talk, it, it's that one. So I, I sort of forced myself to really get it in shape and get a, a proposal together, submitted that like right before the deadline. I was not selected for that, which was fine, because then I already had already done the work. And I was like, all right, well, now I can pilot the idea I put it, made it into a lightning talk that I gave at RailsConf 2016, got a lot of positive responses from that, and was like, okay, all right, I can make this into a full talk. I think I've been on stage for five minutes. Forty minutes isn't going to kill me.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, yeah, basically the, the, the idea is use an API metaphor and, and other software metaphors to talk about feelings as a way of making them accessible, as a way of ha- talking about different aspects of the experience. So that it's easier to understand and especially for someone who, you know, isn't used to thinking about feelings, having a metaphor is like this really great handle for thinking through what things might mean in in their experience. So I said, all right, API. Great. So you've got this API that everyone has and things happen to you like people say things, events happen, and that's going to trigger an emotional response. And that's like an API request response. And so what I started adding into that was, okay, well, we've got this sort of middleware layer that takes in the API response and then figures out which emotional endpoint you're actually going to hit. So it's going to say, well, if this happens to me, if, you know, my boyfriend leaves me, then, you know, I'm going to feel sadness. But another person could have a different middleware that my boyfriend leaves me. And you think, oh, thank God. I was just waiting for that to end. (laughs) And so that's what we all have as people and everything that happens to us in our lives that has some sort of emotional impact builds in new mappings and code in that middleware layer. And it can be a simple thing like, you know, I get pulled over for speeding, I feel anxiety, something simple like that. Or it could be, you know, my mother just died and now I feel a million times pain, a million times sadness, uh, 20 times anger, 100 times guilt, you know, and and this sort of massive complex of interrelated feelings that can be all triggered by a single thing. And so this sort of metaphor sort of explains how you can have a simple emotional response or a very, very complicated emotional response. And then so I use that as a way of sort of introducing the concept and then dive into, like, what I call a toolkit that you can use to start exploring your own emotional API. So you get some experience with, like, what does it feel like when I feel sadness? Because I'm not sure I've felt that before, or when I feel it, I'm not sure what it is. Um, And so I talk about different ways that you can like practice having feelings and pay attention to what your feelings are and notice them day to day. So you get more in touch with what they are and then some more intense techniques that you can use when you have a lots of big, big emotions that you need to express so that you can, really really get them out of you
2: one of the things you talk about on this site are the cognitive deficits of not handling emotions and the cognitive benefits of developing fluency with emotions
3: yeah yeah and actually that was i was you had mentioned that earlier as a question of of how the impacts happen uh and so as part of putting the talk together i did a whole bunch of reading and a bunch of it talked about how this is primarily coming from Amy Cuddy who had done research on on a bunch of different things part of what she talked about was the feeling of powerlessness which is something you get you can as part of society or you know if you're in a, if you're in an underrepresented minority in a group where of people that are in the majority you know you can feel that powerlessness but there are a lot of other situations that sort of trigger you to feel powerful or powerless and I think when you have a lot of unprocessed emotions that are sort of sitting in there that you're not really dealing with, that makes you feel powerless because things can trigger you to have like trigger to react to events far greater than you would normally. Like if you have a lot of unresolved sadness about, say, the death of your parent, certain movies are going to make you cry amazingly, deeply and intensely and Whereas if if you haven't been through that situation, you might just be like, well, that was a very sad movie. Or and you might just cry a little bit. And so there's that sort of difference in in magnitude. So the, um, the feeling of powerlessness, which is that sense of like being in control of your life. Like I have the power to do X in this situation. I have the control over this part of my life to do Y. And I think that unresolved feeling makes you feel like you don't have that power because you could be reacting to things in ways that you don't want to react to things. And so that feeling of powerlessness, they studied it and discovered that it actually affects cognition. So like your actual executive function is impaired. So your ability to focus your attention, to think deeply about problems, do problem solving, keep organized that's sort of blunted when you have this feeling of powerlessness. Conversely, when you're feeling powerful you reverse that problem, and then you also get that sense of like, yeah, now I'm in control. I sort of know what's going on. I, I know how to handle this situation. Uh, I think the powerlessness also affects short-term memory, and it also makes you self-centered. There's a bunch of impacts both within yourself and how you perform as well as how you show up to the people that you interact
0: with. So you just said uh, something I found very startling and intriguing, which was that uh, that sense of powerless uh, makes you self-centered. How does that work?
3: So my understanding of it is it's sort of like when you're feeling powerless, you feel like you don't have control of the situation or of the people you're interacting with. So therefore, you have to look out for numero uno. You have to be in charge of getting as much as you can and holding on to it because it could be taken away at any time. And you have no power in the situation to make sure that you sort of Maintain your safety and your the things you've acquired.
0: So it sounds almost like a scarcity mentality.
3: Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And I, th- I think that ties right in with the you know with the they've they've studied the effect of being poor on your cognitive abilities, and it has similar impacts. where you've got short term thinking. You've got you know I I, I can't plan three months ahead because I don't know what my paycheck's going to be. Like you've got all these cognitive impacts that come from the situation that uh, that sort of. Morph the way that you're thinking about it so that you behave in certain ways.
2: I looked for the reference and couldn't find it. But while I was doing research for the book, I came across a study. It was a case study of an individual who had suffered acute brain injury. And the part of the brain responsible for emotions was what was damaged in this person. And one of the side effects was that they were unable to make simple decisions. Um, Their cognitive function was so impaired that when faced with a choice, they would actually, like, be mentally paralyzed. Yeah, I think I've heard about
3: that, where it's like you you can't have that emotional input that just leans you one way or the other. So you just sort of get
2: analysis paralysis.
0: You have to use the more expensive parts of your brain for everything.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's. So so that what you're saying about how it impairs cognitive function just really feels spot on and I think that that's a counter argument to what we talked about at the beginning about programmers suppressing emotion and just focusing on being logical rational spocks or datas
3: yeah definitely uh, and and that's partly why I have that section in there because I want I sort of wanted to really drive it home that there there's an impact here it's not just about being in touch with your feelings is just better. It's like th- there's like actual impacts here on, on not only how you perform, but also how you work within your team. And that was one of the other things I sort of called out a little bit is like when you do this work to understand your own emotions, whether it's therapy or some sort of workshop or even just spending a little time looking back at your week and saying, oh, all right. And Tuesday, I was a little sad on Wednesday. I was really excited. I was kind of angry on Friday. Even something like that, understanding how your own feelings sort of ebb and flow and what they do is going to help you understand other people's emotions. It's going to immediately connect you to their experience, because I think it's a lot of it's really universal. And even if it's not universal, just the fact that you're having a feeling is a good way of relating to someone. So you can see them going through something and re- and know what it is or know at least enough about it that you can feel that empathy and and
2: try and help
3: them you know, do what they need
2: to do. So you can actually, through practice, raise your emotional intelligence. Yes.
1: I like that because I, it struck me earlier when you said practicing having feelings. <laughs> because I was like, my first response to that was like, I don't have to practice having feelings. I have feelings all the time. I'm great at it. But obviously, like, um, when you say that, there's like more uh, nuance at play. And so (laughs) I like that we got to talk about emotional intelligence in that way.
0: That's interesting. That reminds me of something that Katrina Owen says a lot, which is that practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Yes.
3: I have a post-it note with that written right on my (laughs) monitor.
0: (laughs) So you probably are a pro at having the feelings that you're already used to having a lot.
3: I wouldn't call it a pro. I mean, it's it's a process of continual improvement. You know, I've done it a lot. That doesn't necessarily make it easy. Like, there are still things I struggle with. But I had to get over the feeling that I had to be perfect at this before I could talk to people about it. And thankfully, I've done that because I think it's been really rewarding for me to talk to so many people about this. But, yeah, I still, like, there's still crap I'm not
0: good at. <laughs> And just to be clear, that was my response to Jamie, not to you.
1: When you said when about being a pro, I the thing I thought of was like the way I think of like the word professional is like, well, do you get paid to do this? And (laughs) do I? I'm now so now I'm thinking about like, do I get paid for for having feelings? I do freelance writing, so maybe I do.
2: (laughs) I I know that based on the feedback I get in my work, I get paid. For having emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. because that impacts the way I work with other people. That impacts the way I mentor other people. It affects every interaction. And so it does directly relate to how well I do my job.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true.
1: Professional feelings, ever.
0: In an ideal world, you wouldn't be able to get past a certain point in your technical career without developing those uh, interpersonal and emotional skills. Um, Unfortunately, different organizations reward different behaviors, but yeah.
3: Yeah, there is some data that um, Daniel Goleman put together. He's the guy who wrote the emotional intelligence book uh, about that when you do have the skills, you get promoted faster and you get to a higher level, which is not surprising. So I think there is a little bit of that sort of limited level, but I think people get farther than they probably should.
2: I had a response to a series of tweets that Sarah May was making. She was in a discussion with someone else, I think with DHH, and um, they were distinguishing between an engineer and a coder. And my first reaction to that was that it was a little bit classist and elitist. But I realized that the thing that bothered me is the attributes they were ascribing to an engineer were the attributes of being a decent human being. It had to do with like empathy for your coworkers and empathy for your end users. And to reinforce what we what we just said, to what, what Sam just said, if you don't have those skills, you are not a senior developer. Mm-hmm. If you think that your job as you progress through your career is simply to get better and better and better at writing code, You're not doing your real job. Yeah,
3: I mean, I really like that definition and sort of wish it was more widely deployed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, your job as a senior engineer is to be a force multiplier for other people on your team. And sometimes that comes through refactoring and cleaning up code. But more often it comes from figuring out where other people are at and how you can help them along.
2: Absolutely. And to your point, Sam, a lot of organizations don't recognize that don't reinforce it and don't reward it.
3: And yeah, they'll send you to a a conference to, you know, buff up your, your node skills. But I am not familiar with a lot of places that would send you to a workshop that'll buff up your emotional skills.
0: Right. Yeah. I was about to say like, I'm, I'm fine with a company that sends me to a conference because they think I'm going to learn technical things when really for me, the point is networking and, and forming stronger bonds with other people. (laughs) But yeah. Uh, your point is well taken.
2: Well, technical skills are ephemeral, right? Yeah. Especially in in certain programming communities. JavaScript comes to mind where it's constantly evolving. You have a lot of people joining and there's a lot of change. So if you go to a technical talk about framework X, there's no guarantee that that information is going to be relevant six months or 12 months in the future. But if you go to talks that challenge you, to think differently or to examine the way you think and the way you feel and the way you interact with other people. Those are permanent skills. Yep.
1: I also feel like when I go to a conference, like I could go to a technical talk about framework X, but maybe if I really wanted to learn that, I should just like learn it, like go online and do a tutorial. And I find that Um, more helpful a lot of times than like listening to someone talk to me about it. But like to get a perspective from someone new about something like emotional intelligence, even though it's something that, you know, I have read about before and I do know stuff about like, this is my one chance to get this person's perspective rather than like, this is one of any chances for me to learn the syntax for whatever
2: there are many more inexpensive ways to learn a framework. You can read some blog posts. You can go um, to some websites. You can watch a screencast. That's the easy part.
0: Yeah, plus there's also the risk of going to one of those talks that just turns into the, this is me reading the read me to you for 45 minutes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I've realized that I learn by doing. So those are of limited value other than pointing out ways that where I could go learn more. So, yeah, for all those reasons, I tend not to go into the deeply technical talks. I mean, I think I I enjoy the, the people talks even more, but I think from a career perspective, that's also more important.
2: So what are some of the negative consequences of people who refuse to acknowledge their emotions working on a team? How does that affect team dynamics?
3: I think, like I was saying before, you will have reactions to things that are outsized to their you know, proper proportion. So an example I've, I have from, from my own history, and, and I talk about this in the talk a little bit too. Like before I went through this process, I had not dealt with the fact that my father had died when I was 17. I had just completely put all those feelings away and failed to process them entirely. But what that did was that made it so that pretty much every male boss I had was kind of like daddy. And so when things happened that like I released a bug to production, oh, no, like to me that felt, oh, no, daddy is mad at me and he's going to leave me. And so that is a massive, massive impact on my emotional state there at work, you know, as a 32 year old man versus just like, oh, there's a bug. Okay, well. I think I can fix it right now. Let's just push out the update. So for me reacting to that, I mean, I I wasn't actually on a team at that point, but I would imagine that if I'm reacting to a bug going out with a a whole team is there doing a release, like it could cause a lot of anxiety in other people. It could cause me to lash out at other people. It caused me to overreact to how we're going to solve the problem. You know, there's so many different ways that that situation can go with other people if I'm having a sort of reaction like that that I can't really control because I don't even realize that that's the mechanic of what's happening. That's certainly one of the specific ways I could see that sort of
2: impact going. And emotions can be contagious, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, if there are other people on the team that have similar issues, maybe they're not as affected directly, but they could pick them up from me. And then all of a sudden they're freaking out about what the heck's going on in production. And then half the team is suddenly going off on this tangent of like, oh, my God, the world is ending and everyone has a really stressful night.
2: (laughs) And with that impaired cognitive function, they're not necessarily working at their best to fix the issue.
3: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, your body's washed up with adrenaline and cortisol. Um, you're not going to be thinking clearly. There's going to be less blood flow in your brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's another term called emotional flooding. But yeah, it's this basic idea that once you, once you get past a certain threshold level of anxiety or stress response, then your cognition just goes down the drain.
3: Yeah, the brain isn't the most important part at that point.
0: <laughs> your story about the... Um, uh, is it fair for me to categorize them as daddy issues?
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I used to have a slide that said daddy issues. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: <laughs> Don't want to belittle you on that. But your story about that uh, actually goes directly into a question that I had. Um, so when when I first encountered the term emotional API, it implies to me that there's some way that I can, like, post to an API and influence my, my emotions directly. But in your metaphor, you're saying that there's all this middleware that adds a lot of non-linearity to those external inputs. So does does that mean that our, our real job is to understand how the Middle War works? Or is there some stage at which you can actually influence your emotions and your emotional responses directly?
3: Yeah, you can definitely influence them, your responses. So you can post to yourself, right? You can think about some... Emotionally intense experience in your life and and have that experience again So you you can cause those to happen and you can use that to sort of understand what your responses are but doing a lot like some of the deep emotional work that I talk about where just whether it's just finally sitting down and crying as hard as you can for hours and hours probably more than once to finally resolve the grief that you have about something or laying down on an air mattress and kicking and screaming for as long as you can until you're all your anger for whatever situation is gone. The, doing that work refactors your middleware. It it changes what those responses are because the response can be about what's happening right now in the present day versus what's happening right now in present day plus 15 different layers of history going back to when you may have been very young. And reacting to things as a very young child and very irrationally and very sort of not in proportion with what's going on. So you've got this multiplication effect of the things that happened in your past sort of coming forward and making what's happening to you now 10 times more intense than it needs
2: to be. So this emotional API is not idempotent and in fact can mutate.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you and there and there are also like different versions of the API that sort of evolve at different ages. It's like layers adding upon layer. And so X input comes in at one age, but it's going to call the previous the same endpoint in the earlier ages. That sort of going back to what I was just saying. Definitely not idempotent. I also I'm not sh- quite sure I agree with your statement about it being nonlinear, I don't know that it's 100 percent predictable, Mm. but I think in general, you can probably predict most, you know, in, you know, X happens, Y emotion based on your own experience of how of how your
0: your system works. No, you're right. Perhaps a better phrase would have been counterintuitive. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Much better. One of the things that uh, I've been learning in my uh, DBT group, Dialectic Behavior Therapy, a lot of it is framed for people who have really intense emotional responses, and so I don't identify with it as much because I have kind of the opposite problem. But this one thing sort of sticks in my head as possibly being really useful, and it's, it's deliberately using what's called the dive response, which is this phenomenon where when your forehead and cheeks are exposed to cold water for, I don't know, like 15 to 30 seconds, your heart rate drops almost in half. Because your body thinks it's underwater and is trying to conserve oxygen. But that has the side effect of calming you way the fuck down, which seems like a really useful thing to to know about and to be able to pull out in an emergency. What a great hack. Right?
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, I've actually been doing some of that with just turning the shower onto cold for the last 15 seconds um, and mostly on my face just for that very thing.
1: Wow. I'd never heard of that before. I feel like a lot of my bad feelings involve feeling like I'm underwater, so I'm not sure tricking my body
2: into thinking
1: that it's underwater would help. But maybe I don't understand biology and it would help anyway.
2: It kind of ties back, John, to what you were saying about emotions having biochemical triggers in some cases. So you may not be able to, to reason your way out of an emotion, but there may be something you can do to your body like screaming or punching an air mattress, or submerging your face. There's probably a whole host of hacks that can help you deal in the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. DBT has acronyms for everything. And I mean everything. I can't even remember what all the acronyms are. But one of them is TIP, which stands for temperature change, which is the – response essentially that you're triggering. Uh, The I is for intense exercise and the P is for progressive relaxation. And I'll just leave leave the tip response there as I think that people can Google for.
1: A hack that I've used in the past when I'm feeling very overwhelmed. And when I say I'm feeling very overwhelmed, for me personally, it means like panic attacks that I have. And a hack that I've used for like kind of trying to pull myself out of that is it's five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can feel, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And going through like the steps of that has been helpful for you in the past. I guess the problem for me is that like normally when I'm in the state that like I need to do that, I need someone else to tell me to do that. Mm-hmm. So like I've picked like a handful of like important people in my life and been like, ask me for the five things. If I'm freaking out, but I would imagine that in other situations, someone could just do it internally also and be helpful.
2: I have a similar sort of practice. Um, I have PTSD, among other things. And when my PTSD gets triggered, I was given some advice, um, get under a heavy blanket, wrap it up tightly, drink some hot tea and find something you can hold in your hand that you can smell and touch and try to be present. Don't think about the past, don't think about the future. Just like be aware of everything in the environment around you in the moment, and remind yourself that like where I am right now is safe.
0: That brings up a n- really interesting point that seems to pop up all over the place, which is that you know we can't ever not be in the present unless we're unconscious, right? But so often we layer all this other crap from the past and future onto that as well that it makes it overwhelming. So if you can just strip that away, then you can have a better chance of, of getting a handle on things.
3: Yeah, I think bringing yourself back into the as much into the present as possible is like in the moment, like we're talking about now. Sort of as a there's something intense is happening. I want to sort of get in touch with my felt sense, like my presence in my body in the world. That's a great way of sort of getting out of those states. But it's also I think at the deep work that I talk about doing is. That same sense of bringing parts of you that are stuck in the past back into the present so that they're no longer sort of pulling you back into those old traumatic experiences, even though because you are in the present, you're not five years old anymore.
0: Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. I feel like I. I should probably add that in the DBT training, they're talking about a lot of these skills as like temporary distress tolerance mechanisms that you can use to get through a difficult moment or a short term crisis. But they are not the long term solution to your problems. They're just getting you through to a point where you can maybe do a little more work on them.
2: Yeah. Well, John, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think um, I've learned a lot. I love your API metaphor. I love knowing that you're a person who, who has done the work. And I think that's really inspiring. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this too, and hopefully start asking some questions and check out your emotional API website and start doing the work themselves. I think we all owe it to ourselves to be the best people we can be. And yes, that means doing the work. So thank you for that. And also thank you for agreeing to join our panel. I'm really looking forward to your continued insights and future episodes. Thank you,
3: Coraline. I'm really excited to be here. It's been a wonderful conversation, as I knew it would be. I also want to say, if you join the Creators in Code Patreon, you can actually talk to me on our Slack group.
1: Only you.
2: Patreon.com slash Creators in Code. Yeah.
0: yeah. Any
3: questions you have about feelings, you can come talk to me. We uh, have a mental health channel for talking about that also.
0: It's a very welcoming and caring group.
2: Yes, definitely.